How might we embrace both the incrementalism and urgency of anti-racism growth in all of our schools? Today, I talk with the amazing Jennifer Grant on the show. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. I've wanted to interview Jennifer pretty much since I met her. So now that she's been working in the realm of education since May, I have a much better excuse to talk to her than simply because I liked her and I wanted to pick her brain. Jennifer Grant is the director of the Office of Anti-Racism, Equity and Human Rights Services at George Brown College in Toronto, and she's a background in child and youth care. We talk in this episode about both the incrementalism and the urgency of institutional change, how she manages such a big portfolio, and the realities of anti-racism in her school context. Jennifer's approach to this work is so deeply relational and full of hope. Listening back to this conversation, this really stands out to me as so needed and so necessary. Jennifer is a whip-smart, compassionate, and highly effective human that blew my mind more than once during this conversation. You really have to keep listening for Jennifer's mic drop moment when she explains how having more diversity around the table doesn't necessarily make the work of anti-racism any easier. I loved getting to talk to Jennifer, and I know you will get so much out of this conversation. Let's get right to it. Please welcome to the show, Jennifer Grant. Jennifer Grant, I am so delighted to get to talk with you today. I've been actually wanting to interview you for a really long time, and now that you actually have a role in education, it really feels like the perfect opportunity to get to just steal you and talk to you for as long as we need to. So welcome officially to the show. It's so good. Thank you so much, Celeste. I'm happy to be here. So I like having people introduce themselves. So why don't we start with telling everyone who you are, where you live, and what you do? Sure. So my name is Jennifer Grant. I like to say my pronouns, which are she and her. And um, I live in Toronto, downtown Toronto. Um, Also, uh, the land of the Mississaugas and the New Credit. Um, And really like to uh, speak to the fact that I'm on this borrowed land and, and uh, a settler here. And so like to mention that, um, let's see, what will I say about myself? I think, I think to describe myself is always weird to me because I, I never kind of describe myself through my role, but just kind of the person I am. So I'm a mother of one, I'm a daughter, um, I'm an only child. And that's, uh, it's an interesting experience to have an only child and being an only child. So that's um, true. I'm a daughter of immigrants um, from Jamaica. So what I do is I work at George Brown. I'm a director there, and I work specifically in the Office of Anti-Racism, Equity, and Human Rights Services. Um, and that role, um, I just began in May full-time. So it's a new role for me, but um, that, I suppose, has given us the opportunity to have this conversation because now I'm in education where previously I've worked in um, other service in this, um, spaces, but not in education in this leadership type of role. So I know you from my wife, and she had the privilege of working with you once upon a time. And ever since you came into my life from her, I've just wanted to talk to you forever. Like, I just want to hang out with you all the time and get to pick your brain because every every conversation I have with you, I just leave feeling, wow, Jennifer Grant is so unbelievably brilliant. And I love the way that she sees the world. And I just am really excited about the work that you're doing. Um, So I pulled you in today and thank you so much for coming in because I know how busy you are because the work that you're doing, many of the people listening to the show are educators in K to 12 education. And many schools are now putting people in place with positions similar to yours, different portfolios, but similar kinds of work. So I wanted to bring you in as somebody who's working in higher education to share what you're doing, what you're struggling with, what insights you've gained to share some of that with other people, because your role is really important. That's a big conversation, Celeste. (laughs) 
I know. This will be a 12 part <laughs> miniseries. You exactly. totally agreed to that, right? You're going to come on right. 12 One times. Time for the next yeah. 12 weeks. <laughs> this is your new part time job. Exactly. So, congratulations. <laughs> um, so, I really want to talk to you about this role that you have at George Brown College. Um, you have a ridiculously big portfolio there, and I want to talk specifically about your work in anti racism, but just so people who are not familiar with you, can you just give a brief overview of the many areas that you oversee in your role? And I, I really mean many, and it may almost seem like comical to people hearing all the many things that you do, but just give us a lay of the land. And I always start, I stop, I start by saying that um, the role makes me seem way more smarter than I am, right? Like, so just like, as I say this role, I want folks to, uh, uh, be cautioned that I am not as smart as the role um, might might make me seem. So um, as director of the Office of Anti-Racism, Equity and Human Rights Services, we have a large portfolio, as you mentioned, that includes um, human rights. So we are uh, involved in any human rights complaints that happens throughout the school, um, supporting the school in terms of investigations, but also um, just in terms of resolution, right? And so that could be informal um, or uh, formal resolutions. Um, we also do sexual violence. Um, so the roles that the roles that I supervise include um, reviewing uh, sexual violence complaints or concerns that come to the office, and again, uh, moving through the complaints process, um, including investigations, or actually just supporting um, students or staff that come through. Um, we also are responsible for the privacy. And so I'm the privacy officer at George Brown, which means that any privacy um, <laughs> concerns that come through the college, um, and that includes uh, freedom of information requests, come through our office, and um, I might consult or advise or um, engage folks with um, legal in order to support those um, questions or needs. Um, AODA, so all the uh, administrative functions of AODA, so that is the uh, Accessibility Ontario Disability Act, um, our office facilitates the processes that are uh, um, part of the compliance um, pieces of AODA, and so that includes the multi-year planning, compliance reports, any reporting to the government that has to regards that's in regards to the standards, and really kind of moving the college towards um, an accessible 2025, which is um, what's in our legislation. Um, freedom of expression. So there's a policy around freedom of expression and supporting um, folks for understanding that policy and ensuring that uh, we're creating an environment where students and staff can feel like they can express themselves in a space where um, that's also um, safe for that kind of expression. So we work, um, that works in collaboration with multiple policies just to ensure that we are creating spaces and opportunities for folks to speak um, in, in, um, in free ways but without um, with, at the same time ensuring that we are uh, supporting other folks to feel safe through that speech, right? And so really working with safety, advocacy, all these pieces to ensure that um, uh, we are creating that kind of environment. And then last but not least is anti-racism. So ensuring that um, our college is moving towards um, an anti-racist future by uh, supporting that process through both creating the strategy or supporting the development of that strategy, um, supporting uh, the, the, the college in terms of learning, building awareness, building capacity, or raising um, consciousness around this, 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 uh, this framework, and then helping the implementation of this. So it's each of these, could be a department. <laughs> but, I was just but... thinking that. And like, I didn't mean to <laughs> snicker when you were talking about privacy because it's so important and it's so relevant. But Absolutely. as you got to privacy, I was like, oh, there's still more. Like, the, <laughs> I didn't even know that you did, like dealt with privacy. Yes. It is... Okay, so here's my very brief question that could be another whole episode. So now we have 13 episodes in this series. <laughs> is that too much? Like, uh, that's a lot of roles that you have. Is that too much? Of course, right? And I think... I think um... Everybody knows it's too much, right? And you know, you work in public environments um, or public institutions, and everybody is kind of saddled with too much. It's kind of the uh, the um, it's the part of public life, right? When you're working with with streamlined budgets and and really trying to do a lot with a little. That said, it is there are days where I'm like, what did you do, right? <laughs> I will be honest, right? Um, because truly, there there are times when it is it is it does feel like. I'm really trying to build up 
my capacity in multiple different, sometimes interrelated um, policies, but often really distinctly different type of work um, and with different kinds of uh, motives and, 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 and uh, kind of ways of thinking. So when I think about the way I think about privacy, it's really kind of detailed around looking at legislation and just informing myself in terms of um, are we meeting certain standards, which is kind of the kind of um, same pieces that I might bring into, say, an AODA lens. But then AODA um, is going to further that when we're talking really about inclusion. And so it's, it's a different kind of mindset and you're bringing in more of this creative mindset. And then when you get to anti-racism, it is far more creative because it's almost trans transformative. And this is a new world that none of us has seen, right? And so it is really, you know, you're often, I'm lucky I have a fantastic team. So I'm not always doing all the work on my own, but you really do have to be switching your mind constantly, right? Um, the work that I'm doing in privacy is not the same as the work that I'm, I'm going to be doing with sexual violence, right? It is, hmm. you know, it's, it's very different kind of work. So, um, yeah. I, I want to come back to that idea because I think that many teachers can deeply relate to that idea. And I think that it's, it's an important idea to put a pin in and come back to. Mm -hmm. Zoom in right now in the work that you're doing with anti-racism, because that's what I'm really interested and curious about. And I know that you're really good at and you're very passionate about. So, Tell me, bring me into that portfolio. What do you actually do in regards to making George Brown College anti-racist? Well, I mean, I will, I'll reframe the question a bit because I don't think um, I'm making um, and, uh, George Brown anything, right? I'm really mm. um, opening up a conversation and a dialogue around what could this environment, what could this um, institution look like if we were to, um, move on a pathway that brings us to a place where everyone feels like they feels and knows that they belong right and one of the things that i think anti-racism does is that it starts from the place of those who are often most marginalized most um, vulnerable most at risk for that exclusion right and so to me it's a really kind of um it's really kind of logical process that even though its implementation is compli complicated, it's, um, its way of, um, or its mode or reason or uh, rationale is simple, right? Hmm. We know that there's a center of inclusion and we know that there are those who are outside of that we know that we want a world or we hope to want a world where everyone is within that center of inclusion and there's things that we need to do that to do that and one of the things that does that in my opinion very well is anti-racism right mm -hmm. there's a lot of other ways that people have tried to do that and a lot of ways that i think people um think they're getting close but when we look at what anti-racism asks us to do um what we recognize in that um, work is that it centers the right folks, it calls out the right problem, and it addresses it in tactical and active ways. And to me, very whoa, few whoa, whoa, of, just mm -hmm. say that again. Say that again. That is so important. <laughs> Come back to that and say that one more time. People are like running right now. They're going grocery shopping. You need to say that again, oh. and just like a little bit slower because that is perfect. So what you'll learn about me, Celeste, is that I can never say two things, tw um, something <laughs> twice. Um, yeah. <laughs> your wife knows this about me, I think out loud. And so you, you put me in a position, but let me try. Let me try to say it It was um, again. so perfect. Right? Even if it's not the same thing, it just bears to be said in a different way. But it's, okay. yes. I will try. So what anti-racism does is it centers the right people. It calls out the right problem and it provides an active response to that right and so those are three elements that are necessary and that aren't happening in all the, um, the other uh, frameworks that we use so if you look at diversity it doesn't call it the right people doesn't give us the mm. right actions right it doesn't it, it it might center some people right but it doesn't do those other things right if you look at anti-oppression it doesn't call out the right people right it does talk about this it centers the right person and is active but it doesn't talk about white supremacy and you cannot move forward without that right and so when you think about anti-racism and why i get this question often is why anti-racism i said because this is the starting point to everything else 
because the way that we and I might be going far off topic here, so um, <laughs> uh, no such thing behind that. But the way that we understand um, any type of uh, traditionally marginalized um, folks can't see me doing the uh, the air quotes, but the traditionally marginalized um, groups is through a lens of whiteness. You know, I often ask folks is that if you shut your eyes right now and you think of someone in any identity, chances are the person who pops in your head is white, right? And so if we're only going to um, address these issues through a non-anti-racist lens, so through a diversity lens, through an inclusion lens, through an um, oppression lens, what's going to happen is that you're going to center that action around whiteness, because that's what we do. And what anti-racism does is it literally, um, uh, it, it complicates that white neutrality. It complicates the default of whiteness. It asks you to say, absolutely, let's look at all the reasons why people are often in the margins, and let's know that one of the major reasons that add to this is race. And yet, if we take away race, right, we can't get to the, we, we're not gonna get to race from the other way, right? We can only get it from the front end, right? And so that's the work that I do is bringing people into that conversation and saying, this is why it's important, not simply because we want to address you know, the multiple isms, because we want to dismantle the neutrality of whiteness, because that then gets us to a deeper, um, uh, a deeper relationship with this work around um, inclusion, belonging, and equity. I love the way that you have framed that. And I think that I'm going to have to like, go back and re-listen to this, which I do, but transcribe everything you said, and then turn <laughs> these really important statements that you're making into, you know, fridge magnets that I can just look at every day and just see them. How, I, I want to know how that works in an institution where many people at the top, and I don't actually know what the leadership looks like at George Brown College, but I'm thinking of many of the schools where people are listening from, many of the people at the top are white. Mm -hmm. So when you have somebody coming in and asking these questions and pushing these conversations forward, and most of the people around the table are white, how does that work? Um, I'm gonna answer that in, in a couple ways. The first way I'm going to address that is that that's a, it's a difficult conversation because often people aren't confronted with race in the same way if, if, if you're, you're white. Um, so it's about starting the conversation I believe, anyways, not everybody um, uh, approaches this way, but it's starting the conversation from where people are at, right? And really trying to help um, a movement of, of thought, a movement of action based on, you know, an empathetic response to their reality, right? And, and that then becomes about relationship building. It becomes about thinking about the humanity in one another, because I think that's how this work is done. I don't think this work is done through um, theoretical kind of um, frameworks that it's, it's, yes, we're going to create frameworks and yes, we're going to have these steps, but ultimately it is about really seeing one another, right? And so if I can see you, I can understand how you're coming at this. And then I think um, we can go on this journey together, right? And that I think is, um, you know, I have a CYC background. I worked with um, young people all my life. Um, Say what CYC sorry. is for people who don't know. So I'm child and youth care, right? And so really uh, started my career working with young people, adolescents, um, who often were those who folks would have called at that time at risk, right? And so um, young people who had far more potential than was often seen, but wasn't being seen by others around them and at times because of that wasn't being seen by them and the work that you do with young people is so often situated in the here and now is really trying to understand what's going on with them right now how what, what are their needs right now and then moving them slightly um with their permission so really giving them options for them to say okay you know what i i'm not sure if i want to be here right now these are some options that i can do um 
I think that's the same work. That's the same kind of idea that I'm bringing into anti-racism is that let's talk about where you are now. Is that where you want to be? And if not, here are some options of where you can go, right? Here are some things you might want to think about when it comes to anti-racism. Let's start from where you're at and let's move in the direction that we all want. We're all going in the same direction, but there are multiple paths. So let's get you on a path and see if we can walk you, um, you forward. Now, I say that as though that's easy. It's not. All right. There are times when Celeste, honestly, I'm like, these white folks are going to kill me. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Right. Because it is a deeply personal work in which mm -hmm. you are constantly trying to um, affirm your humanity while you're doing the work of um, pushing a stra strategic um, commitment forward. Right. It's both. So that's one side of the question. I have the second side. The second side of the question is there's always an assumption that if you have a diverse group of people that this work is easier. I am here to say that is not true. Right? Mm. It's different, right? It is yes. not necessarily easier, right? I've, I've often, there's a cloud of um, complacency that comes with diverse spaces, right? Whoa. We're already there. We've, we've got folks around us who are from different spaces and walks of lives and they look different and whatever. And so fit folks feel like, what's the problem, right? And so it's a different conversation that might be easier to get into, but it's harder to unpack and, and, and really get to the depth of it because people feel like they're closer than they actually are. You just blew my mind off there. What just happened? You just <laughs> mic dropped that. So... I feel like my entire existence working in predominantly white institutions, I've always had that narrative of, well, if there was like more diversity at the table, then these conversations wouldn't happen. If there were more queer people up top, these things wouldn't happen. If there were more black people as teachers here, this just wouldn't be happening. And you're saying, no, it, it's always gonna be a struggle. It's just a different struggle. I have it too, right? As a black woman, I have it too that I sit and I watch you know, I watch media, I listen to, um, you know, radio, I, I, I experience the world through the lens of whiteness, because that is often the default, which means I'm influenced by it too. So when I come into a room, unless I'm interrogating how that has affected me as a black woman, I can still uphold whiteness as um, maybe at my own peril, right? And I don't get privilege from it, but I certainly can do the same damage, right? And so I love when Ibram um, Kendi challenges the idea about um, whether folks of color, racialized folks can be racist as opposed to um, uh, racism, right? And so, you know, what I like about his, you know, conceptualizing of that is that if the outcomes, if the impact are still racist outcomes, then you are contributing, you're, you're part of the problem. And so I don't, I am never any more comforted when I walk into a room and I see a, um, you know, a sea of, of colorized spaces, right? Because I remember years ago and um, uh, we were, we had a, um, a webinar or a, actually a seminar, it was in real life these, the, those days before COVID, um, long before COVID with Tim Wise. And Tim Wise um, uh, had a uh, statement which I, have always used, I thought it was brilliant, is that you can have a space that's white and you can simply just colorize the room. It doesn't mean the structures change. It doesn't mean anything changed with the room. You just colorized it like a Ted Turner film, right? And I thought that has informed so much yes. of my work since then because it was just like, you're right, right? Mm -hmm. This assumption that having certain people in the room is going to change structures, mm -mm. analysis, reflection, and work changes structure, not, not presence of people, not representation. That's huge, that is huge. I mean, we can just end the episode right there because that is perfect. I mean, I'm not gonna let you get off right there. So we've gone from like, 13 episodes yeah. to like half an episode. <laughs> you said everything that anyone needs to hear in that those two questions. You're brilliant, you're amazing. Okay, so this is actually the perfect segue because now I assume everyone listening is in love with you and wants to be your best friend and wants to hang out with you forever, like I feel. Um, we're going to rewind a little bit, and I want to know who you were as a young person growing up. And remember, everyone listening here is somehow connected to school. So, you know, take us through, you know, little Jen as a student, as a young person growing up. 
were you Jenny at that point in your life? Were you ever a Jenny? Were you just Jennifer always? <laughs> I was a Jenny until I was six. So my report yeah. cards, which my mother has um, still, <laughs> is that you'll see Jenny happens until I was in grade one. And then afterwards, I become a Jen. And then somewhere around, uh, actually, it wasn't until I was around 18 that I became a Jennifer. Right. And yeah. so I spent most of my life as a Jen. But in regards to the question of how I was as a kid, I think um, the word I would use is complicated. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was I think I could barely say I was a, a bright kid, but just really doubtful of power. Like I didn't get adults. Right. And I didn't get adults in a way that, you know, I don't understand why you are able to tell me what to do. Like I just, you know, it was just something I could not grasp. Um, and I think, it, you know, my mother used to always say, like, always look people in the eye and know that there's no one um, better than you, right? No one's worse, but no one's better. Like she was just very clear of having like a certain amount of um, gravitas in, in your, your just, um, in who you are, embodying it, right? And so I think I took that a little too seriously, right? And really felt like I was, not smarter than any adult. I don't think that was it, but I just didn't feel like I was any lesser, right? And as a result, I think I had a lot of really hard time, particularly in kind of the early grades of, um, of uh, you know, that middle school time when you're just coming into yourself. So 11, 12, 13, 14, where I think, I mean, I think my grade six and grade seven year, I was probably in the office mm, once a week, right? <laughs> like just, you know, yeah, I was one of those kids where I knew the, you know, the, the administrators' names. Um, I, I, you know, the principal would be like, Jennifer, come on, t let's talk to, to you. I just was very, very skeptical of um, the, the kind of, um, I guess the, I was skeptical of how much I was supposed to be in reverence of adulthood. I just didn't mm. buy it, right? And um, that played out in school. It played out. My mother is um, a devout and faithful Christian, um, evangelical, as they might say. Um, and so church was a huge part of my life growing up. And much to her dismay, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't buy in to this world that said, this is the way the truth and the light <laughs> without question. So I think that made me a little more complicated, not necessarily a bad kid or a kid who, um, you know, couldn't, you know, was unruly, but more so just really doubtful of the status quo, really doubtful. Oh, and I had no whimsy. Like you know whimsy? Yeah, I know whimsy. Say more. Say more about that. <laughs> my my aunt, um, who uh, never had children, so I was kind of like her 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 child. She used to say like, "You have no whimsy." Like we'd go to um, Disney World, and I'd be like bored, right? <laughs> like I'm just like you know this this no ability to kind of um, you know I was the person who would dress up as like Rosa Parks for my Halloween, like just no whimsy, no feathers, no no wings, no nothing, right? Like it was just mm -hmm. very, very um, grounded. You know, I think jo my daughter Jordan says, you know, I'm earth, like she's mm. very air, but very grounded, very rooted in something. So who was Jennifer in high school? Still skeptical of adults, still doubtful of the system? Like, tell me about the transition from high school to adulthood, like that kind of, you know, did you know you wanted to go to school after high school? Was that a process for you? Like, what was that kind of like journey out of high school like for you? So for the listeners who may not know this, I, I'm, um, as I mentioned, I have, I'm a mother of one and I was a young mom. So I had, I was pregnant in my last year of uh, high school. And so the, the amount of doubt that was um, there and, and you know what? Looking back, and you know, this is years later, looking back and recognizing the connection between that doubtfulness of status quo, that doubtfulness of, of kind of adulthood, and how protective that was when I, when I got pregnant, right? Because 
I can't tell you how many adults counted me out. I can't mm. tell you how many times someone said to me, you've ruined your life. I can't mm. tell you how many times someone said, you'll never go to university. I can't tell you how, you know, I went to doctors and, and they, they would say things like, well, girls like you end up on welfare. Mm. I cannot tell you how many of that, those messages I got at 17, 18. And because I think, I didn't buy them anyways, right? <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't stick, right? But I, mm -hmm. I think sometimes about um, young people who may not have had that disposition where that would have went. So the transition between high school and adulthood was kind of um, a nine month transition because I had to become an adult really quick, right? I mean, I had my daughter at 18. Um, there was no transition time between childhood and adulthood, right? Um, you know, so I think, and again, you know, the fact that I had no whimsy <laughs> might help that too, right? Like, it's fine. <laughs> like, it's like, all right. But no. Right? <laughs> so, so I think, I think that transition was um, probably, I wouldn't say easier, but, but less pronounced than perhaps some um, young people who are kind of, you know, there's years of this thinking about who I am, whatever. I, I got really clear on who I was going to be the moment Jordan was born. It was like, I have to be this for this child. And that became very crystal clear. Um, and, and yeah, that was at 18. It's so amazing that as a young person, you just understood who you were and didn't need to listen to the stories around you about who people were telling you that you are. Like that takes an incredible young person to be able to do that. And I, I I don't know your mom. I want to become friends with your mom. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of that must come from that kind of role in your life too. Absolutely. I credit her completely. I, I credit my family. Like I had, um, I was lucky, you know, or blessed, my mother would say blessed, um, that I had a really strong, positive, affirming family, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, we weren't wealthy. We didn't have a lot, but I like the wealth of affirmation. I mean, it, that's, that's, I think that's so much more than any of the um, material goods that we could have had. The fact that I went into the world knowing you're good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like there, there might be not that you don't have challenges, not that you don't have weaknesses, not that you don't have barriers, but at the end of the day, your core is good. And that's what mm -hmm. my mother gave me is that who you are is good. Right. And, you know, again, I think that's why I went to this work because that's the gift I wanted to share, right? Is that it doesn't matter all this stuff around you. It has impact. It, it, has, um, it creates more challenges. But if who you are are good, and I do think that most people, essentially, their, their, their mm -hmm. insides, their core is good. If you can really trust that, you can do big things. I, I will say, I, I say this all the time, and I say this to Jordan, we are an impossibility. Like, and I, and I, and I'm oh. not, I don't say that in a... That's not coming from a, 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 an arrogant place. I mean that in the most humble way, I'm almost getting emotional, the most humble way I can say it is that Jordan, who Jordan is, my daughter, and who I am is an impossibility without that core understanding of self. It just, it, it doesn't happen because there's just too many reasons for it why it shouldn't have, right? It shouldn't have happened. But it it also sounds like it's coming from the people around you. Like I know that obviously your mom played a huge role in you being shaped and that the church surrounding your mom. And I don't know if you identify with that community of the church for you, but that that would have been a huge source of strength Absolutely. and belonging and power for your mom. Absolutely. I, I want to touch on that because you talk a lot about community and some of the writing that you've done around George Brown and you're building community and like it sounds like the work that you're doing is so deeply relational and you've been online the whole time <laughs> you literally we were talking about this in the park the other day you haven't actually been in an office with your people no. so how do you build community and maybe this is not the right question because maybe you're like you don't but <laughs> how are you building community in this modality of being mostly online how are you doing it it's hard but I'll, i was looking at this question last night and i went back and i thought let me count how many meetings i've had since i started in may um i've had over 500 meetings since may 
one. Oh my lord! And I'm I'm I mean... not even. I that's no exaggeration. It's all I do is meet, right? All I do is sit and talk with people. All I do is dialogue. When do I get work done? After work, and and you know. Um, if at any point anyone who is uh, from George Brown is listening to this, <laughs> ignore that. Right? <laughs> I have great right? boundaries. I have right? wonderful work-life exactly. balance. Exactly. You did not hear that. But I, because I think it's so important to spend time with people, right, and to have them hear um, your thoughts and to have them have the opportunity to share their thoughts, and particularly around anti-racism work, actually around equity work, I don't know how you do that in silos. I don't know how you do that without hearing from, um, from people. Um, when I started the role, that's the thing that I said over and over again, that community is important. I don't know how to do this work without the community, so I need to get to know them. I need to be in the um, spaces with them. I need to hear from them. I need to be challenged by them, and I need to challenge them. But I can't do any of that. Um, you know, I can't talk about wh whiteness in a space where folks don't trust me. And I can't build trust without being in front of them, right? And so this is all the work of this, um, this is all the work of, of this office and this, this kind of work, I think, is, is really um, taking the time to, to spend in community with people, you know, so. Do you feel like in the 500 or so meetings that you've had, you've been able to create community or tap into a community that already existed you know how are you actually building your network that's a hard one i think i think we're getting there i think um you know i mentioned my um my team earlier and um i think our relationships are growing and we're really trying to understand one another and and find a rhythm in the way that we work. Um, it's a brand new team. Um, the person, the longest person on my team has been there about 20 months, right? So mm -hmm. less than two years. We're, we're this office that's really growing and trying to um, understand how do we do this work together. So um, we're building. It's, it's an active, continual process that we're having with, with the team. I think in um, George Brown at large, um, it's starting. You see these seeds, right? You see um, people talking about the office a little bit more. Or you'll hear feedback here or there around, um, you know, we're starting to see more and, 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 you know, we're trying to communicate. So there's different ways that I'm, I'm getting a pointer that says that we're moving in that direction, but we're not there yet. I think it'll, you know, I, I, I think that's an ongoing piece, but in, even in a space where I felt like I would feel like I could answer that, that question with far more confidence, um, I'm hoping a year, two years from now that we can really, folks can really know what we're doing. Um, there's, you know, there's 30,000 students at George Brown. There's mm -hmm. 5,000 staff, and that's just full-time staff. This is, this is not a small environment, right? And so building community is going to take time and patience um, and effort. So we'll get there, though. I want to take you into something you wrote on a blog post for George Brown College, uh, and I'm quoting you back to yourself, so I hope this isn't super weird, but you wrote, as leaders, how do we address this tension between the urgent need for transformation and the incrementalism of meaningful change? I think there's something you're touching on here that I think many people who are doing this work in K-12 schools can really relate to. Um, change is slow. What, if, what are you learning about institutional change in this role well one that it is slow and it is urgent so this <laughs> that dichotomy that i set up in that um that uh um, article i it's think mm -hmm. uh, i would reframe that a bit and and it's a both and right it is this mm -hmm realization of the urgency of change that's that's there at the same time of recognizing the necessity to be meaningful with that work um, and that it doesn't one is not at the cost of the other but they they work interrelating relatedly so there are times when you can do things quite urgently and can do things quite um quickly and at the same time, recognize that some of the things need to be slow and careful and thoughtful 
um, and take the time it needs. Um, I think sometimes, you know, I think about a comparison that's often made even in the conversations that I have at work sometimes is around COVID. And people often talk about how, you know, the response there was quick and that people, um, the government really did uh, respond quite quickly. And they use that as an example of how, you know, perhaps anti-racism work, um, it's not about um, will, it's about want, right? It, or it's not about um, whether or not we can do it, it's that people don't want to do it, right? Whatever, right? And, and the comparison to me um, at first was interesting because when, when COVID started and I saw the kind of um, response the government um, gave and it was like money was just being poured out and you think, oh, well, hey, you can turn on a dime here. But what we're recognizing as we move out of this pandemic is that the, that was a crisis response. And as a result, what we're seeing is the systemic issues that were there before are still here and actually somewhat deepened, right? And so that quick response, though necessary, um, didn't solve it, right? It wasn't a, it wasn't it wasn't a panacea. It didn't fix the thing, right? But it did help a moment, right? And so I use that as um, an example of how anti-racism can be both urgent and um, incremental um, in that there will be moments and times where there are crisis responses that we can, should, and be thinking about what needs to happen to stop the harm now, right? And then there are things where it's what do we do to ensure no more harm occurs? And those are two different things that we have to be thinking about simultaneously. Um, so it's both urgent and incremental, right? It's both now and it's both soon, right? Let's keep going um, mm -hmm. one day, right? I hope that's clear. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to loop back to something you said earlier in our conversation around all the many hats that you're wearing, doing so much with so little, what do you do to take care of yourself? Like in that kind of a realm, I think that it's a recipe for burnout. And we've seen this with educators, especially educators who are doing this kind of work in the past year, people who are teachers who are trying to have these conversations, administrators who are trying to push forward an anti-racist agenda, parents who are you know, continually trying to have these kinds of conversations with their schools. And it feels like there's so much going on for people in these kinds of roles, but with just not enough resources. Any kinds of insights or advice you have for people in terms of taking care of themselves? Maybe you haven't figured it out, but I'm curious like, what you would suggest to other people doing this work. I haven't figured it out, Celeste. Um, I'm not very good at this work-life balance in in the way that you know i often speak about it in terms of harmony is like can you find a harmonious relationship with your work that's not um that's not putting you in a, a place where you you can't fill your cup right um so i might not always be able to find this balance that people talk about in fact i've mm -hmm. never been able to do that but what I am able to do is to fill my cup at times um, in ways that might be short and sweet or, or, or long, but, but provide something to me so that I still have things to give, right? I still can, um, mm -hmm. can, can, can share that out. I, like, so, you know, for instance, one thing, and this is a three minute thing that I do almost every single morning is I play one single song that is like my theme song that just feeds me in ways that provides an energy. It actually fills me up in a way. It's almost like a battery charge. And I can do my, I can do the first half of my day. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I might take a walk with a dog and that, that allows me to do another part of my day. But do I have an eight hour day? Absolutely not. Right. And that's, mm -hmm. it's probably never going to happen. Do I have all my weekends free? Nope because my portfolio is massive. And so some days I'm gonna have to work a little bit um, more than I'd like to. Would I advise that other folks are doing what I'm doing? No, but I know that that is the choice that I've made. Um, and as long as I'm finding ways to fill my cup so I can continue to um, give, I'm okay, 
it's when I'm not able to do that, then then that's when I think I'll I'll have to um, kind of reflect and see, you know, how do I do things a little different. But I wouldn't. I'm in no position to tell folks how to do this work-life balance because I have certainly not figured it out. Yeah, I think just to clarify, I think where my curiosity is coming from because you don't strike me as a person who is jaded, and you don't strike me as a person who is run down by life. You are somebody who every time I've seen you, you have a sparkle to you. You know, maybe you got your whimsy as an adult. I don't know <laughs> if it just came later in life. But even though the work that you've always been doing is hard and complex and in all the fields that I think you've been in, burnout is rife. And maybe you've had episodes of burnout before, and I don't know the extent of how that shows up for you, but you don't seem like you lack hope. And I think that that's a really clear sign that, yeah, you probably are working really long hours, but I have a theory that you're probably showing up to those meetings with a lot of love and a lot of energy and people can feed off that. So yeah, pump up music. Clearly it's working for you because you have, you have something that draws people to you. And I think Thank that you. it's hope. Thank you, Celeste. And I love that, um, that notion of hope because I think that hits it quite well. I think there is, again, when you're working with young people, I, and I love the energy that um, young people have always um, provided me. So that's the gift they've given um, in the work that I've done. But hope and potential are such energizing, um, you know, emotions or, or, or notions. Um, and, and both are always present in, in the folks that I've, I've had the experience of um, providing service for or, or with or working with. And, and so that's energizing, but also anger is energizing. And Ooh. there are days that I'm oh. pissed off enough to keep going, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, and... anger, if you're angry, you're not burnt out. Exactly. That's a really good yeah. point. Yeah. You have something to fight for. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. So it's, it's, it's both to me. It's, 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 this, um, it's this realization that there's still so much work to do. And again, it goes back to my mother, because my mother used to tell me, to whom much is given, much is required. Um, and I use that as, I mean, I, I think folks have heard me say that to death, right? <laughs> um, to whom much is given, much is required. And I believe that. And, 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 you know, it's not about, it goes back to what I was saying. It's not about these material things, whatever. It's about, I was given a core. That's, that's something that I'm, that's not a gift that I should hide under a bushel. Right. And again, mm. that's, see, that's how, you know, I grew up in church because that's something yeah, that someone girl. who um, <laughs> grew up in church would say, right. Yes. Um, you don't, you don't hide your gifts, right. You don't hide your, your, your light. Right. And that mm. is something that, again, I feel pretty solid in is who I am. And so that's the part that I want to um, share. And that's the part that I want to give. And I want to give that best self as much as I can. And because that is connected with who I'm serving, um, it's not hard. It's not hard to find that energy. It's not hard to find that hope. It's not hard to find that potential. It might be hard to do the work, but that's different than the, um, the passion or the, the connection or the energy to do the work. That's a different thing. Mm. I'm so glad that people get to delight in your spark and in your flame. Like it's just such a great thing that I get to share a little part of you with people that get to listen to the show. I'm going to, we're going to transition to the ticket out the door. So random questions, you can't prepare for them. Are you ready? Okay. Something you are grateful for right now. Family. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning. I check my email. Just like everybody else. Uh, last thing you do before you go to bed. I check my email. <laughs> <laughs> I so relate. Uh, most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh, just this weekend. Um, Midnight Mass on Netflix. Mm. I don't know if folks, but it's so good. Right. Yes. yes. So I haven't yes. actually heard of it. It's yes. A, I will take that recommendation. Take that one. <laughs> Pie or cake? Cake. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Spring or fall? Fall. 
tacos or nachos? Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. Nachos. You are starting a podcast. Who would be your first three guests, dead or alive? Obama. Michelle Obama. Mm, thank you for clarifying that um, point. <laughs> <laughs> um, dead or alive. Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom. Can we get a round table with those three? Yeah, people? that would that be kind of cool. Yeah. Pretty powerful. <laughs> uh, last question that I ask everybody What is the future of learning? Truly collaborative. Jennifer Grant, I am just so glad that I know you, that my wife knows you, that she shares you with me. You are just a remarkable human being. And George Brown is just so lucky to have you leading oh, them you right so now. Thank you so much, Les. It's been a pleasure. You know I love you both. Um, and it's, it's, it's lovely to have this opportunity to dialogue with you. A big thank you to Jennifer Grant for sharing her time, her wisdom, and her insights with us today. I'm really taking away so much from this conversation, but if I were to distill it down to a few points, this is what I think is key. This work of anti-racism begins with empathy and where people are at. It needs a foundation of trust, care, and hope for it to truly flourish in any school context. The second one is just having more diversity around the table does not mean that it's any easier to do meaningful anti-racism work. Analysis, work, and reflection is what really changes the dial. And finally, I just love how Jennifer reflected that she believes that most people are essentially good. If we can trust that, we can do big things. If you got something of value from this show, the most important thing you can do is just share the episode with a friend. Who in your life is doing meaningful anti-racism work in schools and who else can benefit from hearing Jennifer Grant and all her brilliance? If you want to do more, subscribe to the podcast or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep finding hope and potential in your work. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.